It's a palindrome day, 2-22-22, on a Tuesday, so spell Tuesday, T-W-O. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Leila Atassi and Courtney Astafi for another discussion of the news. It's a Tuesday, and it was we all were greeted this morning by lightning, huh? I didn't see lightning. Is it storming where you are? At it, it, like 4.30, oh. you have to get up early okay. to catch well, these the storms, the so maybe you just slept through it. But. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get going on the discussion. How are voting rights groups and Democrats responding to long-shot tactics by some Republicans to force gerrymandered maps in Ohio voters through a federal lawsuit? Layla, this is kind of a desperate measure because they don't like the fact that we're going to have fair maps if the Ohio Supreme Court has its say. So they're trying to take it out of the hands. What are the people fighting for fairness? Yeah, so so to take one step back in in this saga, the after the redistricting commission blew off their deadline last week, Republican activists filed this lawsuit asking the federal court to force the state to accept the you know a map that the Ohio Supreme Court had rejected because it was an unconstitutional gerrymandered abomination. (laughs) So now Andrew Tobias reports that in two separate sets of court filings late Sunday, the Ohio League of Women Voters and the A. Philip Randolph Institute, as well as House Minority Leader Allison Russo and Senator Vernon Sykes, they've asked the federal court to reject that lawsuit filed by the Republicans. They said that letting the issue go to federal courts while the state case is still playing out would violate longstanding precedents while undermining the ongoing state case. The voting rights groups and Democrats also asked the judge to make them official parties in the case, which would strengthen their power to make arguments before the court. The Republicans' lawsuit only named the Ohio Redistricting Commission as as a whole body. They didn't include any of these groups that had sued over the constitutionality of the maps. So, you know, and then, you know, meanwhile, on Friday afternoon, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor basically told the commission, you know, give me one good reason why I shouldn't hold you in contempt for this nonsense. She's giving them until Wednesday to answer that question. So this was one more plot twist in the redistricting drama here. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't see the federal court wading into this when the state system is still playing out. I do think it did. Did, did you guys see the movie Chicago? The oh, movie yeah. Chicago? Remember the scene where where um, uh, Richard, what's his name, is playing the lawyer and he he has a very difficult argument to make, and he tap dances through it. <laughs> it's a very effective way. Oh yeah, yeah. that's that's Dave Yost. <laughs> Tomorrow he's going before the uh, Supreme Court, and he is going to have one heck of a tap dance to do to, tr- to explain why they're not in contempt because <laughs> they are in contempt. They defied the court. I can't wait to see yeah, his arguments. He's never shied away from baloney. I mean, he, he some of the arguments he puts in the legal filings is just ridiculous. <laughs> So it's going to be so much fun to watch, you know, Dave Yost playing Richard Gere <laughs> tap dancing with the Supreme Court. Oh, You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, this is a weird one. How many birds in recent years have been attracted by the bright lights of Cleveland's tall buildings and died by slamming into them? Courtney, I had no idea the, the scope of this problem, but our environmental reporter Pete Krause did a story about a huge group of people are keeping track of this. Yeah, this is a wild story. It caught me off guard, too. So Pete reported on this group called Lights Out Cleveland, which is found since 2017 around Cleveland, more than 10,000 birds that, that rammed into 
you know, glass and skyscrapers downtown. And and a good two-thirds of those birds were dead. So that's a ton of birds over just the last four or five years. You know, they're hitting buildings. They're, they're coming into downtown Cleveland, usually on their migratory paths north and, and south for the winter. Um, so this happens when they're moving up in the spring and, and south in the fall. And, and most of the birds um, kind of meet their demise when they're leaving Canada and headed south. They're younger birds. It's their first flight. And they get caught up in the city and thousands of them die every year. And there's this dance that this group does. They try to collect the dead birds before downtown street sweepers or rodents or cats get at them because they're trying to keep track. But what is keeping track do? Is it just is this a way of bringing publicity to it to try and dim the buildings when the when the birds are migrating? Well, yeah, it does. It does strike me as as a, a protective act. You know, this group lights out Cleveland also goes around to building owners and asks them to turn down their lights as safely as possible um, from midnight to dawn to try and reduce the number of birds meeting their end here. You know, the group, like you said, they go around and try and collect them. Some of the birds they find are alive. They, they take them back to the Nature and Science Center in Bay Village, and they try and nurse them back to health. I wow. didn't realize so, that yeah, birds uh... are attracted to light in that way. I thought that was like moths. <laughs> <laughs> like, right? well, I never heard of that. I, I guess I, you know, that's so. So dimming the lights means that they w- won't be distracted from their migratory pattern and and slam into buildings. That's I don't know. Yeah, I would think that like seeing they, the buildings would help you avoid them. <laughs> so apparently they like they use celestial bodies in the night sky to guide them when they see lights coming from another source. They get disoriented. Also, you know, he reported that. When they when they come down overnight and then morning comes, there's glass windows everywhere. Trees are reflected. They're not getting a true picture of their environment, and they can they can run into the the glass okay. in the morning. That's too. yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I mean, it's awful if you've ever seen a bird oh, slam yeah. into a window. That's... It's um it's pretty horrible. I just I, the the sheer numbers that are being attracted to the the buildings in Cleveland. I mean, thousands and thousands. It does seem like if we're all gonna share this world all creatures great and small we should be more careful now that we know mm-hmm. this good stuff by pete Krause. check it out on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio are area hospitals going back to elective surgeries now that the omicron variant crisis is ending and how backed up are they layla this has been a, a serious measure of just how bad the hospitals have yeah. been something you're familiar with because your husband mm-hmm. works in them and and we've had multiple stages now where they shut down these surgeries. And as we've explained before, this isn't like plastic surgery. These are needed surgeries right. that affect people's lives. So what's uh, what's the situation as of this today? Seems they, they have gone back to elective surgeries. But Julie Washington reports that the, the time between scheduling and actually getting a surgery date on the calendar varies widely depending on the surgery you're getting in the hospital. Some patients are having to wait until summer for their non-emergency surgery. At MetroHealth, it seems like it's pretty smooth sailing without many delays in scheduling. If you're if you're seeking a joint replacement, for example, your wait time, it seems, is pretty similar to what it was before the COVID surge put elective surgeries on hi- hiatus. MetroHealth uh, returned to its normal process of scheduling inpatient elective surgeries on February 1st. At the Cleveland 
Cleveland Clinic, wait times depend on the type of surgery and the medical condition of the patient. The Cleveland Clinic began rescheduling non-urgent surgeries at the end of January. University hospitals began kind of gradually scheduling some non-urgent but essential surgeries the week of January 17th. Summa Health restarted elective procedures about a week ago. So yet another sign that we are perhaps headed out of the COVID crisis at least this year's COVID crisis. I mean, you know me, the glass of post-pandemic hope is always half empty with me. So, but I will give a nod to this as a good sign. Well, remember, the only reason this happened is because of all the people that didn't get vaccinated. If people would have gotten vaccinated, they wouldn't have crowded out the hospitals and forced people who need these surgeries to have to wait. Uh, It's more of the the idea that we really didn't look out for each other during this pandemic. You know, and you're right. We're we're, we're coming out of it now. We might get a three, four months and be back into it. You never know. But it does feel good to be heading into the warmer weather with this thing on the wane. Uh, New variants will rise. We'll have to see if we're back in this again. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know about Bradford Davey, the chief strategy officer for Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb? Courtney, it's just great that you're on the uh, the podcast this week because we're talking about your (laughs) stories. You're profiling people from the new mayor's cabinet when you started with Mr. Davey. Who is he and where does he come from? Yes, he was first up on my list of profiles. You know, I met him down at his new office at City Hall. He he. He's a, you know, a native Clevelander, 34-year-old. He he led Bibb's transition team, worked with him on the campaign in a key role. And now he's essentially, Mayor Bibb has come up with kind of a new, um, a new role, uh, replacing what the former chief of staff job was. So he kind of split that into one guy, Brad Davey, is, is working on kind of big vision ideas for Bibb. Things like Westside Market Reform, Equity how to address lead poisoning. He's also working with, um, you know, the city's data and trying to figure out how we can use the information we already have to improve city services. And in the second half of that old chief of staff job, you know, day-to-day management of city hall staff that's being handled by someone else. So, you know, I kind of just described Davey in my story as the mayor's go-to guy for big ideas. He's he's leading a team of top, um, you know, strategy officers. He's got a small team of senior strategists and they're, you know, digging in deep to things like the leg crisis and equity. And, you know, Brad's an interesting guy. He He's kind of bumped around. Um, his most recent job was at the Fund for Our Economic Future. You know, when he was over there, he was working on ways to help help folks in the, the burgeoning Clark Fulton neighborhood figure out a way to um, you know, build equity before that area essentially gentrifies to cut them in on a piece of the profits of their their up and coming neighborhood. So, you know, that was his most recent job, but but he's he's had some other ones. He, you know, was once at the Center for Community Solutions. He's got a variety of experience. And, you know, he told me he sees his job as, you know, he said Mayor Bibb points in a direction and says, let's go there. It's his job, he says, to to figure out a way to attack those big, deep, insidious, sweeping problems. Is this one of those jobs where you're basically working all the time that you don't get a free moment? Like when people join a new presidential administration, they spend a few years just working at breakneck speeds to get the experience? It, it seems like, yeah, he, he's moving and grooving. He said, you know, sometimes he's working until the security guards come through at City Hall at 8 and say, all right, everybody clear out. So he says he goes home. 
VPNs in and, and keeps working. He's he's going to be busy the next few years, it seems. You know, I didn't know they went through City Hall and swept it out at 8 o'clock <laughs> at night. I, you Go know, ahead, I was thinking, being the big idea guy for the mayor is a huge job. Do you feel like he has the support staff around him to get you know get the momentum he needs on these huge ideas i mean what comes to mind for you know a flash in my mind was like jared kushner who <laughs> the president was like you're in charge of criminal justice reform and peace in the middle east go do it so <laughs> i just am like worried <laughs> that this is such a can can he get his arms around all of these huge initiatives does he have the people he needs to you know get it get it started that's a fair question. You know, these this team of senior strategists who are each focused on an individual issue, like there's the lead the lead crisis strategist, the West Side Market strategist. Mm-hmm. They're kind of his 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 hands in each of these areas. And then what they're all trying to do is kind of coordinate. It's not like there's no support staff there, but they're like, I think, looking to coordinate between existing city departments and help kind of manage it from above but we'll see if there's enough manpower mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. you know okay. in, in in mayor bibb's budget this year just throwing it in he did increase his proposed budget he did increase the money in the mayor's office to support some of these roles that that brad's overseeing so potentially that could help out that's exciting cool well i if you're going to do a lot of initiatives which he which he ran on which he pushed and brought this energy and you're going to need some extra people to do it so i don't think anybody's pushing back on the increase of expenses he just has to deliver on the initiatives so we'll have to see if they do the bit you talk about big ideas and still waiting for a few more we'll have to see you're listening to today in ohio what percentage of the federal government's paycheck protection loans to businesses in northeast ohio during the pandemic have been forgiven meaning the businesses don't have to pay them back. And Layla, how does that work? Yeah, so reporter Zach Smith tells us that more than 83% of these Small Business Administration Paycheck Protection Program loans have been forgiven in, in our area, which means that they, they pretty much met their promises to maintain their payrolls during the pandemic. The agency issued 14,675 loans to Greater Cleveland small businesses during the two years of the you know worst of the pandemic here. The vast majority of these were for very small businesses with eight or fewer employees. But combined, the businesses employ more than 112,000 employees and received more than $2.5 billion in loans. Most of that was under, you know, there were loans under $150,000 with an interest rate of 1%. To to get one of these loans, the businesses had to promise to maintain their payrolls at their current compensation rates and then spend at least 60% of the loan on payroll expenses. Borrowers have up to 10 months after the last day of the covered period to request forgiveness. Many of the businesses that haven't paid back their loans in full or applied for forgiveness are still within that period. So, um, you know, the experts say that's the bulk of them and um, or the I'm sorry, the bulk of them were issued closer to the front end of the pandemic, which means, you know, the ones that have been forgiven are are those earlier loans. Um, You know, you apply for loan forgiveness once the money has been spent and within 10 months after the last day of the covered period. So overall, it seems these loans have achieved, you know, their goal of helping businesses keep folks employed during this very, very difficult stretch for small businesses. 
Well, a couple of things. I, I guess, based on what you said, the number can keep going up, right. going up. But the second thing is, is there any watchdog on this? Or are they just relying on the company to say, yes, we paid That's people, we question. didn't do anything? Or is there an auditing function is the, the question I have. Because uh, that's a, such a high percentage, you just wonder if that can possibly. That is a be great accurate. question. That I think, uh, yeah, I would like to know the answer to that too. I don't know. These were tax dollars, mm-hmm. after all. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. This next one's a weird one, Courtney. Yes. <laughs> Why did a Cleveland police detective handwrite a felony charge on a prosecutor's charging document? that already had been signed by the prosecutor listing only misdemeanors. And what is the fallout for a police officer who was proven to have such dishonesty? Yeah, so this gets into all sorts of potential issues. Um, You know, veteran Cleveland police domestic violence detective Lisa Milnick is, um, she hand wrote an additional, it was a misdemeanor domestic violence charge onto a list of other charges a city prosecutor had already signed off on for one of her cases. She's a veteran cop. She should know that she shouldn't have the authority to just choose what to charge suspects with. That, that, that's a role that falls to the prosecutors. But for some reason or another, she went ahead and added this charge. And uh, well, stop, stop, stop. She did it in blue and ink. So you have this charging document that has typed or printed by a printer the misdemeanor charges that the prosecutor decided were merited in this case. And then she takes a ballpoint pen and writes in blue ink the felony charge. I mean, we, and, and Adam Fries, our reporter, published it. It's on our site. You can see it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and, and, and that handwritten charge, for whatever reason, I got turned into a warrant, and the warrants were issued. So you can't... You can't do this. It jeopardized the whole case. It involved um, an ex-boyfriend assaulting a woman, essentially, at a gas station in Collinwood. And her actions basically mean that, that you know, she's under root, under review for being dishonest in the line of duty. That's, that's turned into a bunch of other cases she's investigated, getting thrown under review. That information has to be turned over to defense attorneys now and could jeopardize those cases. But the wild part to me is that the city prosecutor's office knew about this shortly after she did it in December of 2020 and essentially didn't take the steps they needed to take here for almost a year. They didn't disclose to defense attorneys that this officer had done this, you know, allegedly dishonest act. And, 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 even and though the public defender to. caught it. Yes, they're yeah, required, they're required to. to notify the attorneys. It's part of the discovery process so that the, the attorneys, when they get the officer on the stand, can discredit her because of this huge level of dishonesty. The, the, you know, the part of this that, that was, was just as outrageous to me is this guy in the middle of this case was accused of, of trying to choke his girlfriend with his fists at a gas station. But because of this police officer's dishonest behavior, they dropped all charges. So if you're the victim of this guy, how would you feel about this? You'd be outraged that because the cop did such a bad job, your attacker walks free. Right. I don't I mean, this happened down the street from where I live. I don't like the idea of of this guy just getting off because the the police officer did her job the way she did. It's unsettling. And the victim has to be beside herself. Um, You know, I 
Yeah, no, I will say that, you know, the question mark here is the city prosecutor's office, city prosecutor Aquila Jordan's office, was notified about this issue way back when. They didn't, they, they sat on this info for a year, and in the meantime, she's been allowed to invest a, gun, a bunch of other cases. And, and now the defense attorneys on hundreds of other cases are going to have this, you know, the, this thing to reference when their cases go to trial. This officer looks dishonest. She's under criminal investigation, and she's under review for possible discipline for this. And it's still one of those where you sit back and say, what were you thinking? You can't just write in extra charges because you disagree with the prosecutor. It's not how the system works. Great reporting by Adam Paris. Check out the story on Cleveland.com. It is one unholy mess. It's today in Ohio. All right. Yesterday was a slow news day, so we're dipping into our list of unpublished stories to give you a preview <laughs> of what's to come. How is a Cleveland State University professor leading an effort to document and map Northeast Ohio places that have faded from memory, but where black Americans found recreation during the years of segregation in America? Well, this is part of Brenda Kane's reporting for Black History Month, and it's a really interesting piece. Really when we publish it, I think people are going to be fascinated I love by this it. story that Brenda did. She, um, she wrote that in the 1960s, if you were a black traveler, you would often have to depend on the little-known book that's called the, it was called the Negro Motorist Green Book to find lodgings and businesses and gas stations that would serve you and to avoid the threat of racial violence. And this book, which was at the heart of this 2019 Academy Award-winning movie by the same name, was published until 1967, and most of the listings were really for larger cities, and only a few of them were in smaller towns and Midwest states. Those Northeast Ohio sites included in the guides were mostly travel-related. Hardly any of them were made mention of recreational sites, sites where black travelers or, or local residents could really be a part of nature. But Jonathan Souther, a professor of history and the director for the Center for Public History and Digital Humanities at Cleveland State University, has been working on this special project with a group of students to change that and to, to bring this history back to the fore. Since, late, since last August, they have been researching, mapping, and documenting sites that black travelers enjoyed that didn't appear in any of the Green Book editions. And they're calling it Green Book Cleveland. They've now identified and written about dozens of sites that would have otherwise just faded away from history. They did this by researching digital archives of the Call and Post, as well as the Pittsburgh Chronicle, which mentioned them in articles or ads and offered clues about where they were located. Green Book Cleveland has been able to identify country clubs and riding academies and camps and resorts and beaches across Northeast Ohio that were really similar to the more prominent white-owned recreational areas. And one example from Brenda's story is the Stony Brook Estate, which was a campground for African Americans on the property of what is today Blossom Music Center. And this property was bought in 1957 by Bill and Anna Johnson, an African American couple, but an arsonist set fire to several of the cabins 
And Bill Johnson had told reporters at the time he would rebuild and make sure the campground flourished and remained a site where black families could come and enjoy. And But Green Book Cleveland hasn't been able to figure out what happened to the Johnsons. So that's just one great example from the story that's going to publish. It's a fascinating project, a fascinating piece by Brenda. So check it out on cleveland.com. When is it going up, Chris? <laughs> I got to figure that out. Before Monday, obviously, because that's the end the of Black end. History yeah. Month. But it's um, it's a great story. It just It's rich. I love the quote from the professor about how you know, the Green Book had places to stay and eat and things like that. And he says that this is humanizing mm. the past because it's about the things people did beyond the basic needs. So yeah. good stuff. It'll it'll publish sometime this week. I just we have to figure that out. You know, Laura Johnston is off this week and that's normally her job to figure it out. <laughs> She's so. our air traffic controller here. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to do it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Do you think you can sing? We know Layla can from singing her editorial board Christmas carol in December. Courtney, the Akron Rubber Ducks are giving undiscovered singers a chance to be discovered with one of the most difficult tunes to sing, How So? Full disclosure, I will not be auditioning, but uh, (laughs) the Akron Rubber Ducks are, you know, they opened up virtual auditions, or they're going to be, for national anthem performers for the 2022 season. So this is kind of a, a chance for singers, vocal groups comprised of five singers or fewer, and other musicians to submit a video and, you know, sing sing their heart out for the national anthem a cappella, unaccompanied, um, send that video in, and they'll consider them to sing before the ball games this season. You know, the home openers... April 12th, and the deadline to apply for the national anthem position is uh, March 11th. Could you imagine being the one of the judges on that that has to pick? I mean, you're going to see, I bet, some spectacular voices that that blow you away. But you're also going to be listening to, I think, quite a few that would sound like me if I tried to do it, which would hurt your ears. And I just, I, it would be an interesting exercise to go through. But it's very, very cool thing by the rubber ducks to open this up to allow budding singers a chance to get in front of a crowd. It's one of the most difficult songs to sing because of the range. So I, you're really putting people to the test. See, they're missing an See opportunity here. This could be done like a <laughs> America's Got Talent style, you know, big production. And they're <laughs> instead they're quietly choosing them through virtual auditions. <laughs> well, you don't want to embarrass people. You know, if people come in and they're out of tune or they're off key, you don't want you don't want to put that up before people. What were you gonna say, Courtney? No, just saying, um, you know, just responding, it's a tough song. And they had to hit those high <laughs> notes and, and not a not a good chance for folks to maybe be out there if they're not, not ready for them, right, Leela? <laughs> well, it, it clearly demonstrates whether or not you can you can hit the notes because it's a it's a tough song. We'll have to see how many people get through it. You're listening to Today in Ohio and it's a short one today because yesterday was such a slow news day. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow with Seth Richardson to talk about some politics. And I believe, if all goes well, Lisa Garvin will rejoin us after overcoming her technical difficulties. 